you know, it's wonderful. Wow. But it's, you know, it's the melting pot that America is. It made American music. That's what it is. I mean, there's nowhere else, nothing like it, is uh-huh. there? You know, there's nothing like it in the world. It, you're so lucky. You know, you're so lucky. You know, don't lose it because it's your great con- contribution to world culture. Welcome to episode 24, Jazz International, part 2, the last offering in season 3 of our Jazz Backstory podcast. British pianist Keith Ingham set us up for a second look at the international scope of American jazz. Our voices today come from aspiring musicians around the globe who are compelled to immigrate to the U.S. to pursue the music they heard on radio and recordings or at live gigs by visiting American artists. Most of them arrived without a gig, but proceeded to pay the dues necessary to enter the jazz scene. Before we listen to their stories, a vocabulary word up front. Jazz writers often employ the term jazz expat, short for jazz expatriate, which unfortunately sounds like an individual the FBI would have a file on. It simply defines a jazz musician who leaves their shores for friendlier confines. In our case, a significant number of jazz artists, predominantly African-American, learned that Western European countries offered steady gigs, respect for artistry, and most significantly, less racism. Some noted jazz musicians prospered for a few years in the new settings, eventually returning home while others, like noted reed player Sidney Bechet, settled in Paris, became a cultural hero, and never returned. Saxophonist James Moody found success in Europe in the late 1940s and had eyes to call it home. While in Sweden, he recorded the distinctive Moody's Mood for Love, resulting in a modest jazz hit. During our 1998 interview, James spoke about the reason he came back to the States and what still existed when he did. You considered staying in Europe. Oh, yeah, yeah. But you didn't. No. Uh, you eventually came back. And, and why did you decide? Well, I came back because the, 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 the record was a hit. Mm-hmm. And, and they kind of convinced me, said, go over there, make the money, and then come back. I uh-huh. said, okay, that's what I did. Yeah. Then when I got over there, I said, it's ridiculous for me to run away from the place where I'm born. I'm raised, I have every right to mm-hmm. be here, more so probably than some other people. Mm-hmm. So why should I, you know, so that yeah. you know, stay? Did you avoid certain parts of the country when you had your own No, I played player? everywhere. Yeah. I played Jackson, Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, I mean, I, you know, yeah. But, uh, but you know what? I like Southerners. And the reason I like the Southerner is because a Southerner will tell you, I don't want to be bothered with your breezy behind. Get the hell out of here. Or either, I love you. And whichever one he says, you can rest assured too. But the New Yorker, you know, oh, what a wonderful person. Oh, man, and stab you in the back. See what I mean? So you never know what to expect. Yeah. 
But when you get my age, I'll be 73 next month, you can kind of smell it and feel it. And you can put on a thing and smile, and they think they got you. But you know what's going on. And I do. I can smell it a mile away. James refused to be denied his livelihood in his birthplace and fashioned a stellar career that included years with Dizzy Gillespie and numerous return trips to jazz venues abroad. French citizen Pierre Beausaguet fed his jazz fever by seeking out recordings and the few individuals who could offer clues to the craft. A mostly self-taught bassist, he honed his skills and became a sideman of choice for touring American jazz artists including Clark Terry, Johnny Griffin, Phil Woods, and Harry Sweets Edison. His itinerary was the opposite of James Moody. Leaving France for the U.S. and returning to Paris after building his reputation in the States. You must have so many memories working with all those giants of jazz. Yes, of course, and I would I would say that uh, I was I'm young and old at the same time. What I mean is that when I started at that time, when I started to be really just crazy crazy banana about jazz, uh, the only thing we had was records, LPs, mm-hmm. and tapes. That was it. And especially being from the southwest of France, there were no jazz school. So, in other words, whenever you, each of us, we was we wanted to get some information, I would say that the talent was to have the nose and to know who to call and where to go, take the car and drive, to speak to that one person. He's got that record by Duke Ellington, or he knows about that tune, that, that was a trick. Mm-hmm. So, and to answer your question, um, what I, uh, to me, the jazz school was, was to be, to be in a coffee, to be on a train, to be uh, driving, to be mm-hmm. on a road for five hours per day. And that's where you, you hear all of those stories. Some, most of them are very funny, but you discover the, the, the all, the all image of the big tree of who is who, who played what, who created that, uh, and, and I got lucky to, I don't know the reason, but I, I got so lucky to be around all these old musicians. And the more with the years, it's been years and now, when I think of it, I mean, I played, I played a few tunes one time with a big Joe Turner. Wow. Straight wow. piano player. Impressive. I mean, when I look, <laughs> when I look at pictures in the book, I say, yeah, I know this guy. Yeah. Uh, I remember Dickie Thompson, an uh, old guitar- really? guitarist, uh, and, and, and so on. What was your first uh, jazz record as you listened when you were young? Well, it's in my small town, there I was maybe 15 or 16 years old. F- 15, I guess. No, 14. And there was a new shop that's, that opened nearby my, my parents' house. And it's a very small shop, and they started to sell, um, what do you call it, uh, equipment, sound equipment. Mm-hmm. Um, and just a few records. And I remember they had maybe three three boxes mm-hmm. of LPs, like that. Oh, wow. And I I saw something saying jazz. They had classical, rock, or pop, and jazz. So I didn't know basically, basic, no, uh, at that time I didn't know any, anything, anything about jazz. About jazz yeah. 
Some friends told me hey, you should investigate because I mm -hmm. used to, to play accordion for for dancing okay. parties, and I just I wasn't I didn't even move to the bass, and I remember that I I look at the covers. Mm -hmm. It's beautiful. I love LPs because of the size sure. of, of it. And I saw it was a black and white picture, and there was it was filled up with the face mm -hmm. of one guy. That guy was Harry Sweets Edison. Jazz recordings often provided impressionable young musicians with their first jazz experience, one that some can still recall. These recordings were prized commodity in every European country, including Scotland. Baritone saxophonist and self-described country bumpkin, Joe Temperley, was among the many aspiring musicians who could not resist the call of jazz and the ultimate destination of New York City. Well, growing up in uh, Scotland, mm -hmm. right? Your hometown was what? Cowden Beef. That's. Uh, I wasn't going to try to pronounce that. Cowden Beef is about uh, maybe twenty miles uh, northeast of Edinburgh. It's in Fife, actually. It's over the other side of the the, the Fourth Bridge. Okay. And it's in the Kingdom of Fife, mm -hmm. and that's the only county in Scotland that's actually called a kingdom. So uh, I grew up there. But I left there when I was like 17 or 18, 17 maybe. Mm -hmm. What kind of music um, did you hear as a, as a child? Well, the only kind of music I, that is, I vividly remember is dance bands on the radio. You know, bands like uh, Henry Hall and Geraldo and, uh, and those kind of bands. And then um, when I got a bit older, when I got to be around 14 or 15, uh, I I started playing the saxophone when I was 14. And um, when I was about, of course, there was no music schools. <clears throat> Excuse me. There was no music schools or anything like that. So um, I just had to have, a, a, I had a few lessons locally. And uh, and then I just have to, had to get on with it myself, more or less. You know, okay. I'm still doing that. And um, uh, the, the first introduction to jazz, actually, I had was Cap Calloway's band. With um, it was a saxophone record. On one side was uh, Chew Berry playing Ghost of a Chance. On the other side was Willow Week for Me with with um, Hilton Jefferson. At what point in in your early years as a saxophonist did you did you make a conscious decision that you were going to make a living as a musician? No, it just sort of grew, you know just sort of grew on me, I guess, you know. Um, when I first started off in Scotland, um, I, I, I went to work in a nightclub in Glasgow, and that was a traumatic experience for me. Even though I was only moving 50 miles from my hometown, you know, my accent, for instance, was completely different to a Glasgow accent. I was a real country bumpkin. What kind of, uh, tunes were you playing in this club in, uh, in, was it Edinburgh, you said? Or in Glasgow. Glasgow. Oh, God. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. You know, things like, um, uh, you know, My Blue Heaven and Blue Skies and, you know, those those kind of standards. Yeah. 
Was there a sense of that this that this music was coming out of America and that we wanted to get our hands on it? That the records of it were something to to search out for you guys. Oh yes, yeah, it was very important. That was very important to search out records, you know, because they were very scarce, and and you you didn't see many seventy eights in those days. So when a new record came, you know, a new a new record would be maybe Benny Goodman's Sing Sing Sing, and everybody would have to get this copy of Sing Sing Sing. You have to order it. It would have to come from London or somewhere. You know, it was a whole big operation. Yeah. Nowadays, <laughs> you know, nowadays you have everything on hand. You sure do. The whole history of jazz is 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 right there before you. Well, when was the first? Uh trip to the United States. The first trip was in, with Humphreys Band in uh -huh. 1959. We came uh, with the Newport uh, Jazz Tour. And what it, it consisted of about, oh, about six or seven different groups. There was Humphrey, and there was another English group that was co-led by Alan Ganley and Ronnie Ross. And then there was American groups like George Shearing with the brass section. He had just made a record with the brass section. And, uh, there was George Shearing and, and Cannonball Adderley and Nat with, with their group. Okay. With, um, and also Thelonious Monk, which was a big eye opener for me to actually be on a tour with Thelonious Monk Quartet and be able to see Thelonious Monk working every night and, and hear, you know, Charlie Rouse's approach to, to playing and, and Thelonious playing the piano. That was a, a really a big eye opener for me and coming to New York City, of course, uh, we, I spent a lot of time, uh, going down to the five spot. And at that time, um, Benny Golson was working at the five spot with, uh, Curtis Fuller. And <clears throat> we, I used to go there a lot. And, and, and then of course, being on tour with Cannonball Adderley and, and, and being on tour with Thelonious Monk. And, you know, when it actually came time to leave, uh, New York, I just said to, I said to the drummer in the band, I said, this place is just something that, I must come back to, I have to come back to New York. And I did. Six years later, I came back to mm -hmm. New York. And uh, if I'd known what I was getting into, I would, probably wouldn't have done it, you know. <laughs> but uh, I came back, and I didn't really know anybody. I didn't have a job. And um, But six months later, I started working with Woody Herman's band yeah. through Jake Hanna and Nat Pierce got me on Woody Herman's band, and I just sort of went from there. And where it went, was gigs with Woody Herman, Buddy Rich, Thad Jones and Mel Lewis, Duke Ellington, and the Lincoln Center Jazz Orchestra. Not bad for a Scottish country bumpkin. Between this episode and the last, we've heard from jazz players from Japan, France, and now Scotland. Now, if I cast my memory back to Music History 101, there were a few Italian musicians of note including Vivaldi, Puccini, Pavarotti, Paganini, and Rovati. Otto Rovati would be the outlier here, not a classical composer or performer, but a fine jazz saxophonist and composer, transplanted from Pavis, Italy, to East Hampton, United States. During our 2022 interview, I asked Ms. Rovati what type of comments she would receive when playing gigs in her home country. Yeah, that was like that. Yeah. And, uh, well, and, you know, as a female, going back to the previous, they would say, you sound like a man. 
<laughs> so <laughs> that was another compliment I would get in Italy. You sound like a man and you sound like an American, you know? <laughs> so <laughs> the first one didn't really never sit well with me, I have to say, you know? Uh, but... Um, but yeah, is, we always look up to you know uh, jazz is a music that was was born here, so we found you know that American could have an authenticity, and we 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 just kind of like try to copy, but I think this day at this point is a global music you know because um, if you close your eyes, you wouldn't think it is like some musician from New Orleans and maybe it's a little a young girl from Taiwan, you know? And, uh, you know, sometimes you just don't, you know, we arrive at the level that, um, you know, there are great musicians everywhere. And you, if it was a blindfold test, a lot of people wouldn't know who is, is uh, uh, their ethnicity, where they're from and their gender. You know? it's, it's, it's interesting and a bit ironic that jazz was thought of as an art form first in Europe, not here. Um, people, yeah, that's a scholar you know, that's, writing about it and all that kind of thing. Yeah, it was more appreciated. Um, I think it has to do also with the you know racism here in this country and in in. A, Europe, you know, just the, the way I also, I remember I grew up, there was always a kind of interested about, you know, when, uh, you know, musician would come uh, and tour in, in Italy, it was like, you know, black musician, it was kind of cool. There was like, you know, there was not the, there was not the, uh, he added something even more exotic and more interesting, you know. Uh, so uh, I think that they didn't have to deal with the racism that it was here, you know, yeah. and uh, and it just is a really as an art form, <laughs> you know. I think that that's when Europe got got it right right away. It was an art form. Um, here it took a little longer to be fully appreciated. Yes, that exotic factor, extra points from coming from somewhere else. Pianist Rosano Sportiello grew up just down the road from Adorovati and described the respect he shared with his bandmates for jazz and the established artists that played it. You see, when I was in Milan, you know, we felt, I mean, myself and some of my colleagues in Milan, we felt that uh, the way some American musicians play jazz was really special and somehow we felt that that was the right way. In other words, in some of these American musicians there was uh, that uh, kind of authenticity in the music, of course, is the music of their own country, you know, so... And so every time we uh, knew that there was a, a famous American jazz players that would tour Italy and come Milan or close by Milan, we would go hear him. So we went to hear uh, Tommy Flanagan in Milan, we went to hear Kenny Barron once uh, in uh, near Modena. I went once uh, all the way to Switzerland in Bern, almost 400 kilometers from my hometown to hear again the Tommy Flanagan trio 
And then Barry Harris came, uh, you know, almost every year, still going there to Italy. So every time we heard one of these musicians playing, we heard that uh, there was something way superior, you know. And so what happened was that when we would play gigs uh, with uh, my Milanese colleagues, uh, and one of us would play very well, the most beautiful compliment that we could tell each other was, tonight you sounded like an American. You know? So, this has got nothing to do with the politics and, uh, you know, it's just, uh, it's just the fact, you know, because we felt that the jazz of Coleman Hawkins, the American tradition, was uh, the tradition to follow the authentic tradition. And I don't want to offend no one because today, now 20 years went by and of course the music spread even more and there are some young musicians from all over the world that they play fantastic, you know, so. But back then, 20 years ago, that's what we felt. We had this great admiration for, for the great American players and we wanted to sound like them. Arturo Sandoval is one of the premier trumpet players in the world and defected from Cuba in 1977 in search of freedom and a jazz career unrestricted by politics and ideologies. While acknowledging the fulfillment of those goals, he shared his disappointment with a lack of support for jazz in the very country where it developed. Here's an excerpt from our June 2023 interview. I strongly believe that uh, we have a serious problem, especially in the U.S., with the appreciation and and uh, promoting, defending, protecting the immense legacy that we got in our culture about jazz. We don't feel like that kind of appreciation in general term, I'm talking about the radio station, the television, the media in general, we don't have a little bit of support. I'm going to tell you something. I lived in the U.S. for 34 years, and I consider a crime that I never saw one minute of jazz on television. I repeat that. I consider that a crime because if you go to Scandinavia or Japan or anywhere, even in Europe, all over Europe, on Saturday night, to put an example, on Saturday night at 9 p.m., you're going to have a good chance to watch on the main network two hours or any of those jazz festivals around the world. I never saw that in the U.S. And I repeat, that's a crime because it's our mission, it's, a, it's our obligation to preserve that immense legacy that jazz music means 
to the American culture. And I'm going to add something. I strongly believe that jazz music is the most important contribution from the U.S. to the art, to the world. Some people don't, some people know. Most of the people don't get it. And that's something unacceptable. It's something horrible, horrible, because I always think about what Duke Ellington and Louis Antron and Dizzy and, and all those people, they're looking from the sky. They said, guys, what the heck are you doing with what we left you? Are you protecting this? Are you defending that? Are you promoting? Are, are you proud of that? Are you? They have that question, and they ask that question to us every day. While jazz currently thrives in academic settings and is highlighted during summer music festivals, Arturo points out that it barely registers on America's media outlets or in our culture as a unique and globally respected art form. Have I mentioned how quotable jazz musicians are? I'm sure I have, considering that's the basis of this podcast. And here's one more. This time from a British jazz expat, pianist Keith Ingham, who introduced this episode. Okay, are there Michael, any, are there any counterparts of American musicians who've gone over to England and learned as much about your music as you have about... Well, there's not stuff. much I could say. You know, what do you mean? <laughs> British music, I mean, well, we never had anything as wonderful as jazz. You see, I think it comes from a, you know, a melting pot society where you've got all these different strains coming together, you know. This yeah. is the whole point. You know, you had Italians here, so you have this wonderful lyric quality. You have, you know, Afro-Americans, as they call now, you know, but you have that rhythmic thing maybe they brought, you know, that, that looseness and that sense of swing. You had the Germans here, you know, so you have the correctness of intonation and things like that. You have a whole melting pot, and they all brought their music. We had the Russians with all that minor key soul, <laughs> stuff, you know, I mean, you know, it, it's wonderful. I mean, Gershwin is Russian, but also very Jewish, and that kind of sad, soulful feeling that's in his music is, I think, more Jewish than Russian, you know, mm. or American. I mean, it's just Porky and Bess could almost be a Jewish opera rather than a black opera, you know, some of that stuff. It's yeah. so, you know, it's wonderful. Well. But it's, you know, it's the melting pot that America is. It made American music. That's what it is. I mean, there's nowhere else, nothing like it, is uh -huh. there? You know, there's nothing like it in the world. Mm -hmm. it, you're so lucky. You're so lucky. You don't lose it because it's your great con contribution to world culture. I mean, it's your Beethoven, your Haydn, your Schubert, your Debussy, your Ravel, your Elgar, your Henry Purcell, or whatever you want to call it, your Rachmaninoff, your Stravinsky. Yeah. It's all there. It's Duke Ellington, it's Fats Waller, it's Henry Red Allen, it's Bix, it's uh, Eddie Lang, it's Joe Venuti. It's up there. And God bless it. You know. Oh, God. We're we lucky gotta, to we be. we got to get you on Letterman. <laughs> there you have it. Confirmation that music, and jazz in particular, is America's most significant export. You can quote me on that. This brings us to the end of Season 3 of Jazz Backstory, into that vital part of all gigs, the break, which we're now going to take. Kudos to my orchestra in a nutshell mates, John Hudson, Tom McGrath, and Sean Peters, and to Jason Lever, Michael Coe, Doug Higgins, and Romy Bertel for their technology and content chops. Ah, one more jazz vocabulary term, chops. 
referring to the skill on your chosen instrument, specifically a combination of your physical and mental faculties. As in, that cat has awesome chops. You can view the full video interviews with these musicians on the Phileas Jazz YouTube channel. That's Phileas, F-I-L-L-I-U-S. And a tip of the hat to Milt Phileas Jr., Hamilton College Class of 44, and to his dear friend, vocalist Joe Williams, who combined their passion and foresight in 1995 to launch this jazz oral history project. This is Monk Rowe, and I'll see you on the flip side.